This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. We saved the world with nothing but our wits and our Series 7 de-atomizers. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Excited to talk about a fabulous movie, right? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, in one hand, this movie had its work cut out for it in that, like, we've been saying... And we're we're about to do international for like months now. So <laughs> here's our grand return. Uh, yeah. So if you, if you hadn't guessed, uh, we are talking about uh, the fourth and probably final for a very long time Men in Black film, Men in Black International. Uh, before we talk about that, I want to ask you guys if you enjoy the show to please uh, take a moment to go and rate and review our, us on iTunes and subscribe while you're at it. And uh, like us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest episodes and to give feedback that can end up on the show. And uh, speaking of said feedback, we actually have feedback this episode. Um, so we asked on Facebook and Twitter what our listeners thought of this film. So Byron Lafayette said, one of, the, one of the better MIB stories with a very interesting origin for Tessa Thompson's Agent M. However, under F. Gary Gray, the plot gets mired in bland directing. And the wonderful chemistry of Hemsworth and Thompson that we saw in Thor 3 is nowhere to be seen. And we are left with a motion picture that feels oddly lacking. I don't know how entirely blame F. Gary Gray for uh, reasons that we'll talk about later. Yeah. Uh, Drew Dodgen from the Cinecast said it was okay. Truer words have never been said. Uh, then Mike at Jarek on Twitter said an incredible disappointment. And after MIB2, that is saying something. So diving into the behind the scenes of Men in Black International. Uh, so Men in Black 3 came out in 2012 and did pretty well at the box office. The following year, it was reported that Ori Uziel, um, who, was the, who was also writing the uh, 22 Jump Street for Sony, was hired to write the fourth film. Um, and somewhere over the next couple of years, the idea of connecting the Men in Black and 21 Jump Street series happened. Um, flash forward to 2014, we had the massive uh, Sony picture hack, which was uh, you know the North Korean retaliation for the uh, then upcoming James Franco, Seth Rogen comedy, The Interview, which that actually happened. And I feel like <laughs> we still don't talk about that enough. Uh, it's a yeah. crazy world. How, how is there not a movie about that? You know, I don't know. Maybe maybe other studios just don't want everything leaked again. Nobody wants to be the one. So after the hack, all manner of the info on the internal workings of uh, Sony was released onto the internet. And among that uh, was plans for a crossover between Men in Black and, and the uh, Jump Street series called MIB 23, which is just a beautiful title. I love that so much. Uh, and this continued in development for quite a while. Uh, in 2016, they even got so far as to hiring a director, uh, James Bobin, um, or Bobbin, I'm not sure, of the recent Muppet movies and the Dora film, uh, was hired to direct the crossover. Uh, but ultimately, the project kind of fizzled out. Uh, then in 2017, a Men in Black spinoff was announced and that would be written by Art Markham and Matt Holloway, writers of Iron Man and uh, Transformers The Last Night, among other things. And it was it was to be produced by the husband and wife team Walter F. Parks and Laurie McDonald, who have been um, who have been like the lead producers on this series all the way back to what was it nineteen ninety seven seven I think when it, long time when the first one came out yeah this, this, the the series is their baby uh, then it was in uh, early two thousand eighteen it was announced that F. Gary Gray hot off the success of Fate of the Furious would be directing and which I 
I thought it was quite very good news at the time. For the you know, in an alternate reality, maybe it was good news. So for the cast, uh, this movie had been in the works in some form or another for a long time. Obviously, um, it was the announcement that Chris Hemsworth would be starring in it as Agent H that kind of seemed to get the ball rolling, and and everybody started thinking, oh, this might actually be a real movie at some point. And then after that, Hemsworth's Ragnarok co-star Tessa Thompson joined as Agent M, uh, and then Liam Neeson was cast to play High T. Uh, Kamel Nanjiani, uh, who was also kind of on a, a hot streak at that point, uh, especially after the big sick, uh, plays the tiny warrior Pawnee. Uh, and then huge favorite of mine, Rafe Spall, plays the kind of antagonistic character Agent C. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, who I did not know was in this at all until the third I act. Didn't uh, either. Like that was so weird. Like she and she was big at this time. You know, Mission Impossible, you know, had, had was was still was a huge hit. I don't. It's just strange. Like it and it didn't feel like it was a big reveal enough to where oh this is a secret casting. It's just oh here she is. Yeah, uh, but she's here as a uh, Riza Stavros. French dancers Laurent and Larry Nicolas Bourgeois, known as Les Twins, uh, play the villains The Twins, uh, which is very creative. As far as it looks like, the only two cast members that return from the uh, previous films are Emma Thompson as Agent O uh, and Tim Blaney as the voice of Frank the Pug. Did she have the white hair in MIB3? No, it was definitely blonde because they. she was blonde because they also had, uh, what's her name? Ashley Alicia, whoever hmm. plays the younger O in the flashbacks in MIB3. I absolutely forgot. She's from Into Darkness. Alice Eve? Alice Eve, yes. Oh, that's my favorite MIB film, but I completely forgot about all of that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the film was primarily shot at the Leavesden Studios in London in the summer of 2018. Uh, there was also significant location shooting in Marrakesh, Morocco. It was shot by cinematographer Stuart Stewart. Stewart. Stuart Dryberg, um, who had done mostly dramas up to that point. And then after the film's release and disastrous reception, almost immediately reports started coming out of a very troubled production. The story is that the version of the script that got Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson involved and interested was, uh, quote, quote unquote, edgy and sociopolitically relevant, uh, supposedly dealing in themes like immigration, which I feel like would have been incredibly clunky and heavy handed, but definitely more interested than what we got. Um and I mean, I guess it's, you know, the idea of aliens, you know, because that idea was kind of even there from the first movie. Yeah. But, but. I I feel like when, whenever a film announces itself as relevant, it's like, I always kind of cringe a little bit. It's the same whenever a film describes itself as like sexy and fresh. I'm like, oh, no, we don't need any more of these sexy reboots. As the story goes, the primary contention would seem, seem to be between director Gray and longtime series producer Walter F. Parks, uh, who had final cut control of the film. Um, reportedly, Parks was re- rewriting the script all the way through pre-production and into filming. This clashed with what uh, F. Gary Gray wanted to do um, so much that he uh, apparently attempted to quit film quit uh, as director multiple at multiple points during filming uh but was convinced to stay on possibly because of contractual obligations but uh apparently it wasn't it wasn't a very happy shoot uh there's also word that multiple writers uh were brought in to help with rewrites during filming uh including hemsworth and uh thompson bringing on their own writers to punch up their dialogue which which actually isn't all that rare but 
honestly, it kind of feels like you can feel it in the scenes where it's supposed to be riffing off each other. It's like, oh, let's just say words and <laughs> stuff will There's happen. so many moments where I'm like, I know you were going for a laugh there, but. Yeah, and supposedly, so one of the reasons that's cited as given as a reason for the, the, the chaotic production is a lack of oversight uh, from Sony, who is the, the primary financer and um, distributor. Apparently, the executive who is responsible for overseeing the production left the studio and wasn't replaced. Um, so there was no direct, direct liaison between the production and the studio, leaving, you know, who could actually resolve, you know, resolve and tell the, the kids to behave, you know, as a Parks and Gray were going at it with each other. Um, I should also note uh, that producers Parks and McDonald did release a statement denying, you know, any major production issues or undue meddling. They basically, there was a, a piece put out by, uh, I think it was Hollywood Reporter uh, that, that that detailed all this stuff. And they put out a response saying, basically, nope, nothing happened. It was all perfect. We're all happy collaborators. And I totally believe them. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like given the lack of a response from F. Gary Gray on it, like that means it happened, you know, because if he, res- if he responds like, oh, yeah, it was bad. Maybe that's, you know, him not playing ball with studios. But if if it didn't happen then he would absolutely be like oh no this response that they made this is accurate there were there were no problems so by mm-hmm. staying silent it feels like a you know a silent admission but he gets to you know have his hands clean yeah for the film's post production um, the conflicts between director and re- producer reportedly continued into pro- post production with each making their own cuts and fighting over things down to like color grading however despite the constant infighting in the production uh, unlike most films with similar issues, there weren't any expensive reshoots, uh, so the budget kind of stayed static, um, which is good for them in the long run because it was already a, a $110 million budget, uh, but that was able to stay fixed. Which, I mean, it's a completely underwhelming movie, but it looks decent. And, you know, that's not, there are, you know, most blockbusters cost a good bit more than that, so they, I guess they got, they got their money's worth, sort of as far as, you know, making it look like a real expensive blockbuster. So, James, so I know this was your first movie, so I'm going to talk about mine. Um, when I heard that F. Gary Gray and Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson were coming together, like, this sounded, like, just fantastic. You know, this series has always depended on the chemistry between uh, Will Smith and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, So, and uh, Hemsworth and Thompson have been so fantastic together in, in Ragnarok. And I, I've, I've enjoyed pretty much all of the F. Gary Gray films I've seen. I, I, I was one of the few people who actually really liked Fate of the Furious. Um, so it s- seemed like a very kind of a, a surefire thing. And then the trailer came out and it was like the most fine vanilla trailer you've ever seen. And it kind of dampened my expectations. And then the terrible reviews came out and I went in to see it. Uh, and it was pretty much just a thing that I f- saw and forgot about. Um, yeah. So that was my my first viewings, and my thoughts had not changed at all with my second viewing. Uh, what about you? Uh, so yeah, this was my very first viewing, um, and I like I I knew my response that I had was exactly what I expected because it's hard to find anybody to find anybody who feels too strongly on this film in any way. Like, well, first of all, it's it's hard to find anybody who's seen it, but when you do, it's like. Oh yeah, I saw that. I I was kind of boring, and then you ask details, and it's like nobody remembers anything, and it wasn't even that long ago. It's already been like just completely lodged in the back of everybody's head, where they 
the the recesses of of their cinematic memory. I guess the best thing I can say is I didn't dislike it. Uh, <laughs> I feel, but I also can't say that I liked it. I it when it ended, I described it immediately as just like this is empty calories movie. Like it is a it. There's two hours of my life that were dedicated to this movie. I I know that that's a fact, and that's that's what I can say about it. You know, this it doesn't it didn't elicit any sort of re- real reaction to me from me. Yeah. So normally when we talk about films, we kind of go through either the plot or the character arcs or the themes. But this movie doesn't have any of those. Like, I guess it sort of, kind of, maybe has a little bit of a plot. Uh, but even then, it's so lackluster and just loose and languid that it's almost it's like it's like difficult to re- to describe. You know, like just yeah, things happen. They go here and they go there, but calling it a plot seems um generous. Uh, but so I guess I'll talk a little bit about just the, the filmmaking involved. Um, it's a very slick looking movie. Um, there's nothing like particularly inspired or stylish, but it looks like nice. It looks like it, money was spent on it. Um. It reminded me of I know you like this movie. It reminded me of look of how like Jurassic World looks. Just it looks expensive but also remarkably bland. To me, uh there like it technically looks nice. There's something about it that just it constantly felt very small to me. Like it it felt like like we're on sets and you can see digital extensions and stuff. I don't know. It just it felt particularly the scene in the desert where they're sitting around bonding or, or arguing as they fix the motorcycle, like it's the most obvious. This was filmed on like a twenty foot by twenty foot yeah. plot of sand in a studio, and there's green screen in one direction and just like a, a a wall of sand in the other direction. Like, oh, this is this is totally a set. Yeah, and even things like the like the nightclub where I feel like it, it's an alien nightclub. You know, as as a production designer, I feel like they just go wild for stuff like that, but feels so small without any sort of distinctive alien style it's like we've got nice blue lights and a surprisingly little room mm-hmm. uh the, that the lack of style uh, in the production design was really noticeable like i think that's one of the awesome things about the original trilogies we had sonnenfeld and bo welch the production designer and those movies have such a distinct vision of you know, this man in black universe you know they feel very tangible those movies to me yeah, there's so many props and, and sets that you could just you see them and instantly brings you back to the movie. And this like it looks like Men in Black, but it lacks any of the distinctiveness. I think I think a lot of it is it's far too CGI. I think there was a really great and I don't I hate being the guy like oh it's CGI. But there there was a great mix of CGI and practical in those original films. Even going to the third one, which had a lot of CGI. There was still a lot of there's there a great practicality to a lot of the aliens, and also just the designs were so much more memorable and outlandish. The, the most of the aliens just felt very CG and almost like cute. Like there were so many cute aliens, rather than the, the more garish, goofy stuff that was in the originals. Yeah, I'm glad you said it because that's exactly how I felt. Because and at first I was like, I I don't want to be this the, this is CGI and it's all practical all the time for me. Because uh, I, I, at first I was noticing it a lot, and I'm like, well, you know, thinking back, there's definitely CGI in the originals, so I can't say I can't just blast this because there, there's that, you know, like the the ending villain, like it's a giant CGI cockroach, you know. There's plenty, like you said, plenty throughout 
the third one. But it got to the point where I'm like, everything is so slick and so shiny and so like clean looking that I really did like I I remember like whenever she first gets to the the headquarters and she's walking around, I can't help but think about Will Smith doing that in the first one. I'm like, they're those big like aliens with tentacles that are like just the way they move you know leaving stains on the floor there's those other ones with all like the long fingers that are actual practical effects like everything looks like these are real like kind of gross creatures touching everything and this one felt completely removed from all of that and this might be a function of budget um because the the cgi like it's not terrible it's not bad cgi at all but it is just that it's that one little bit over the line where you know it's it's a cartoon. Yeah. But there's no like specific thing. Oh my gosh, that one thing was so bad. Uh, it's just kind of a consistent thing there, to notice. There's there's that constant disconnect for me between them and the environments and real people, you know. Like it's they're they're sharing the same frame, but I don't buy that these are in the same actual location. Uh, another thing I interesting that I noticed was the aspect ratio. Did you notice that at all? Where it, it's where the, the, the original uh, trilogy was, was shot in the other, the 1.85 to 1, which is just the standard it fil- widescreen. It fills up the entire screen on a widescreen TV. Uh, you know, the more, uh, uh, like a lot of blockbusters are shot in a, in a, a 2.3, uh, 2.39 to 1, which is the, the actual the ultra widescreen where you have the black bars on the top and bottom. This was shot in a 2 to 1, which is like in between those two. It's what, it's what the, nowadays, whenever a TV show wants to look cinematic, like Stranger Things or, the more expensive TV shows, what they'll do is they'll do a two to one, which gives you these tiny little black bars in the top and bottom. So you get, you know, the height that you're expecting in a TV show with just the, the you know, the little bit wider to make it feel more cinematic than your standard cable. And that's what they did here, which, which I, just, I just thought was an interesting look. Maybe they're just trying, they, they didn't want to go full widescreen, but maybe uh, Gray didn't also didn't want to go, you know, the, 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 uh, the more, the, Maybe they didn't want to you know, to to jar too much by going ultra widescreen, but while still not wanting to do the standard, just more cheap. I don't I think I don't want to say cheap looking, but I feel like our brains are kind of wired when we see block you know expensive movies, we expect them to look, you know, in, in the ultra wide rather than just the standard widescreen. Um, another film that did this was Jurassic World, uh, which was shot in this ratio because they wanted the cinematic look of ultra widescreen, but they also wanted to get the height. To show the dinosaurs, they kind of compromised in between those. Um, I just like aspect ratios, uh, especially after uh, just the uh, crazy tall aspect ratio that Snyder is using for the Snyder cut. I'm just like it, it like reawakened an obsession in me. That's all I'm thinking about. <laughs> um, speaking of which, DC fandom, that was really awesome. Yeah, who'd have thought that that would have been the best conference of like everything we could have looked forward to. And the fact, the, the, the just we could pause on Men in Black International. Wait, uh, just the way they had so many just first looks at the Batman, Guard, not Guardians of the Galaxy, well, <laughs> Guardians of the Suicide Squad, and um, Snyder Cut. They had all these first looks, and they were all amazing. It was like I, I can't recall a Comic Con that was where I got usually it was like second and third trailers, like oh, that was pretty cool, maybe behind the scenes. This one, like. The first thing you're seeing of all these things that look absolutely amazing, um, it was awesome. Yeah, but, uh, but back to Men in Black. It, it, for, hey, it <laughs> feels good to be a DC fan again. It's been so long. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, what do you want to say about this film? <laughs> what else? Is there, what else is there to say? I guess we can talk about the cast. Um, 
And this was, like, I think, the biggest disappointment because I, I kind of like I would have assumed before seeing this movie that any movie in wherein you know Chris Hemsworth is the lead, he's going to be really good and always fun to watch, even if the movie is bad. And he's trying, like he is really, really trying. But I think to the point where he's like visibly trying too hard. There are so many comedy moments where he's just he's trying to sell the joke, but it's a bad joke and it won't sell. But he, <laughs> gosh, darn it, he's going to do it. The, the feeling I got from his performance was that like we were we were like seven or eight takes or, or more after like the good take. Everything uh, it, it it felt like this was like the thirtieth time they had done the same scene where he's like he's still he knows the line, he knows everything, he's and he's like hitting the same beats again, but And he's a little drunk. For, yeah, for well, for whatever reason, in the back of my head, it felt like there's a little bit of exasperation behind this. There's a little bit of a, I'm getting a little tired. I'm trying to sell it, but I'm, I'm, I'm not super into this anymore. Yeah, and pairing him with Tessa Thompson, who in my my mind didn't look like she was trying at all. Uh, it's crazy because their chemistry together in Ragnarok was just absolutely delightful. And I don't think there is any of, I don't think they have, they have like negative chemistry in a lot of their scenes together. And it's so weird. The, the scene after like they crash and they're, they're using Pawnee as like this in between. I'm like, that's the most, that's the most chemistry they had because they (laughs) they had something in between them. But even that, like that whole thing, felt just kind of stiff and awkward to me. I, I yeah, I, I never cared about them together, and so at the end, whenever she's like, he, he's like, oh, New York, and she looks back, and I'm like, oh yeah, like I, I guess I'm supposed to think that they're like, no, we can't not work together. I guess. It doesn't help that there's nothing for them to do. Like they have no arcs, and the most baffling thing about this film is. Uh, the character, you know, the character of Molly, Agent M, she gets everything she w- ever wanted in all her life in the first 15 minutes. And she doesn't want anything after that. Like, it's like, it, this is like the most basic screen. Like, you have to have a struggle. Like, the, they ha- a character has to desire something across the narrative. And she gets it all. Not only does she get it all in the first 15 minutes, she doesn't even have to try. Like, we don't even see her try. There's literally. A, there's one like 10 second scene in between her interview with M or with O and her being initiated where we see um, O looking at a screen of her, the results of her training and where she's all like 90% on all of them. And that's the only transition we have for her character from, you know, the conspiracy theorist you know, hunting for the truth to now being a full fledged agent. It just, it just happens. It's all just handed to her. And it's boring. <laughs> That's so with the you know you've got the lines of like oh you you've never loved anybody and blah blah blah. I'm like okay they're are they gonna fall in love? Is she gonna? But that's dropped completely. Like I guess they try they're trying to say like this kind of little this bond she's made with uh, with H as like her growth of like oh she has had an attachment. Like O pays lip service to that. She's like at, at the very ending you know like the it comes at a cost. I'm like, not to her. I don't buy that she cares about it. Like, this is ridiculous. And then, yeah, about her getting everything so fast. 
again, I don't think movies have to be compared to the one that did it first or as if like that's a template that you have to abide by. But whenever it's in the same series, you it's impossible to not draw comparisons. And I think about the first one and how long we spend with Will Smith before, you know, he actually becomes an agent. You know, we mm-hmm. see him as a cop as long as we do and the recruitment process taking as long as it does and the introduction to the headquarters like there's it's it's a full act it's it's and obviously that movie has to do world building in a way that this movie doesn't so i get it but it also gets to create a character before they throw him into the conflict and she's just not a character yeah and there's also there's what about her personality makes her you know this special like you get it with will smith you know he has that tenacity like with her like i guess she's like she's hyper competent like what about her makes her so good and the film never rarely ever demonstrates like why she in particular is so gifted and so much better and necessary than anyone else it's it's just just assumed what it felt like to me was was what they were saying is because she had like you know she has no she has no family. She has no friends. Every th- her entire life has been dedicated to a singular goal of finding this. So you have that. You have that drive, that tenacity, and because men like the organization is looking. But even then, we don't even see that. Like she exactly. literally Which finds it's the, all the, told. The, 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 she finds their secret base on what we, as far as we're concerned, is her first try. But it says twenty years later, and you can tell that she's really uh. been trying. Okay. We don't get to see it, but trust the movie, it happened. All right. And then there's uh, Agent H, Chris Hemsworth. Um, there is, there's an interesting thing they're touching at. Um, the whole thing, we don't, where you, the opening line, we don't, he knows he saved the world, but there's also a change. In, everybody's like noticing a change. And that, that moment of realization, like, I keep saying that. Why do I keep saying that? Which I think they kind of, which they, uh, have you seen, have you seen uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Yeah, Tahiti. It's beautiful. It's a magical place. Oh, it's Um, a magical place. That's right. But like that, I think, did the exact same thing so much better. Oh, yeah. uh, So it's like it's an interesting idea being neuralized and believing something to be true only to find out that like literally your own your your mind has been messed with. Like it's a as existentially terrifying thing. But even like like everything else in this movie, it's hinted at and just breezed right past. And I was waiting for, like, something more. Because, like, I I don't understand. I guess what they're saying is because he saved the world, but it didn't, but he didn't actually have to earn it, that it's given him some sort of cockiness. I don't know. You know, like, people, the constant barrage of people saying, like, oh, you've changed, you're different, this isn't the same guy. Like, does a singular, like instance of being neuralized i i don't understand how it changes him to his core the way the movie says it does but i don't even understand who was he before then <laughs> we don't exactly. see it did he go from some true hero like this hero that everybody loved and aspired to be to just this arrogant jerk <laughs> God. and even then like even as he's he's the person who's ever say you you change you're bad you know you're failing now what are you doing you're, you're destroying your life even that he's he's always winning and like he does it in unorthodox ways and he's kind of a slouch, but he still every time he tries gets the job done. So like what are they complaining about? 
I don't know. <laughs> um, so there's the uh, the twins, the villains. Uh, the, as far as characters, there's you know character wise, there's absolutely nothing. I think the design is kind of cool. Like when they go into their weird form, like the 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 nebula galaxy yeah. look. Is, I really like their design a lot. Yeah, and the the way they they morph matter around them is really cool. There's the shootout in the street. Like it's the actual setup is kind of boring because it's just one person shooting, one person walking, but they do some really cool things. Like when they grab the car and just like smear oh. it across the, the road in front of them. Like if like if they had like some actual creativity behind, you know, the structure of the action sequences, they could have done some really, I think incredible stuff with just how cool of a concept they have, you know, their powers are. Yeah. And it, so visually, I thought that they looked really, really cool. I love, yeah, I love the effects. Whenever they grab their car and they do that, I'm like, that, I really hope this goes anywhere. And <laughs> it, it doesn't really. And, but like even the road, like the road wave effect was super cool. Uh, and a weird, a, a moment that I liked, I liked their their little break dance scene of the two, like just their their cold, dead stare while they're doing it, like. That feel, whole bit was pretty cool to me. I feel really bad for these two guys. Like, they, you know, 20, 2019 was supposed to be their break, big break into film, and they chose Men in Black International and Cats. Oh, no. Uh, it's sad. But also, and what was their, like, their death? The, the, the last minute reveal of all, oh, they were actually trying to blow up. I'm like, these, why is... Yeah, they're jerks anyway. Who cares? I, every, every bit of it was just so... <gasps> Weird the, and rushed to me. That the person melty effect that was so freaking gross. And that, we just like watch it for like ten seconds as the guy just like bubbles and melts into the pavement. That, and the the second guy we see in the in the, like the shop at Marrakesh, it reminded me of something from like uh from Annihilation where he's like melted into the floor. We see like these like channels of color and ugh, it's it's horrible. That was one of my favorite parts because that was one of the moments where I'm like, this is like the kind of nasty edge to Men in Black that's been missing, you know? Because those movies have... And that's... Like, I do think the trilogy, even two, which I'm not fond of, like, they have villains that are memorable. I mean, Plant Lady is... That's that's kind of exaggerating to, <laughs> to call her memorable. Okay. Not super, but I can I can picture it in my head. I can. I think it's just lingerie. Well, I can also <laughs> mildly remember motivation, maybe a little bit, uh, but also like the movie spends time with her and she has dialogue and there's stuff going on. And I do think both uh, both just Boris from three and freaking creepy Vincent D'Onofrio from the first one, like those are memorable and creepy and fun villains and these guys have cool visuals but there's just like do we have like the one line of dialogue do they say anything before that final scene oh yeah they, they talk to the shopkeeper that's right okay what do they say in the final scene i don't even remember that we need uh we oh take is that what something the we, of... we need it and we'll take it um to you know we need it for the the hive or oh that's right and so that's, uh, like, despite how cool they are visually, their cool powers and their cool, gross, draining life powers, that's like that's it. There's nothing else. And speak, I know we already kind of talked about the difference in aesthetic between these movies, but also I think back to like the morgue scene and seeing old 
David Cross like stuck up on the ceiling. There was that dirtiness and grossness to that that's just completely gone here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's run through a couple more characters. There's Agent C, uh, played by Rafe Spall. Uh, you liked him. I just found him like just the most irritating, cliche, whiny bureaucrat that we've seen in every movie about a bureaucracy ever. He's like the only character I actually like in this movie. Okay, I will give it to him that he had the only moment where I chuckled out loud. In this case, it would be a terminating followed by a neuralization. <laughs> it pulls it out. Uh, but like, I think there's only one moment where I chuckled out loud. I think that was it. But uh, yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I, I'm going to try to count the amount of times I laugh. And I think I forgot to do that. But I also think, I don't know if I ever actually got a, a full laugh uh yeah and also like he is it's the thing where in every single movie with a twist villain they give you the red herring villain and he is the most obvious red herring villain ever like it's like it's like, I, I feel like the moment in cinema that twist villains were created red herring red red herring villains were also created and we wise up to them just as soon but they keep using them in all these movies and they never really work and this one, they turn him up. So, they, he's so extreme that you you totally know who the actual bad guy is going to be because there's no one else on screen aside from Liam Neeson. Um, so it's, it's it just doesn't work. And and and, and they, they know they know the reveal is is an absolute nothing, and they don't even play it as a surprise. Like when they when they find out that the uh, the weapon is gone, like yep, it has to be high T. I knew it. <laughs> He's like, okay. <laughs> Process of elimination. There's so few actual people we know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so I, the writing for the kid, uh, yeah, he's red herring. Cat, like it's, it's one of the more blatant examples of it. Uh, oh, and even on the writing, another thing that didn't work for me is I, it took me a while to pinpoint it, like, or to, to really feel exactly what they were going for between he and Agent H. Because at first I thought it was like just kind of almost friendship with rival like their first one was like, oh, you like a you like a puppy dog to him. Oh, he 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 loves like just the way they were joking back and forth. I'm like, do they dislike each other? Are they cool with it? Or what's the thing? And then then he tries to neuralize him at that one scene. Which is that's late in the movie, so that's how long I was constantly being like, "What is, what's the relationship here?" Like, okay, so he's definitely not friends because he's ready to take him down. But then, at the very end, like, oh, he he's the one who recommended. I'm like, what is? There's all over the place. It's I don't know. I don't feel like their their dynamic was ever properly established. But all that being said, I thought. Even though he never, I, it never got full laughs from me. He was the funniest actor there. I felt more entertained and engaged with him than I did with Hemsworth, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, don't know. I will I just, say he he's, he does give the most lively performance in the film. Yeah. It's the fast talking British accent that I just I really liked. Uh, so yeah, like he had like the rest of the cast, he had absolutely nothing to work with. But he also felt like the most committed of anybody, and like at least just to me, because Liam Neeson was just kind of saying his lines. I've Tessa Thompson was there, and 
Chris Hemsworth felt like he was trying, but just after a really long day. So I don't know. He was the only one who was like, ah, a performance. Let me enjoy this. Like the only the only guy I found like mildly consistently enjoyable was a Camille Nanjiani as Pawnee. Like I never like laughed out loud, but he got me to smirk like occasionally on a regular basis. So like I thank you, thank you, some something from this movie. Um, I think my favorite bits were from like you know my lady the jackass wants to talk wrench. The jackass says, "My lady, you have the power." <laughs> my lady says, "Thank you." Ugh. <laughs> he has. He, I keep. I think. You know, being in post-production, able to do the voice, he was able to, you know, add some more chemistry that was lacking, entirely lacking on screen. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, there, there were moments, it's rude, I kept going back and forth, like, there'd be something he'd say, I'm like, okay, that was kind of funny. And then other things, I'm like, oh, that's a really try-hard joke. And so, I I never just really, like, like the most I liked him was actually, at the very beginning, was just the, him threatening to take his life. Like, it's, I'm about to do it. I'm going to do it. It's going to be the most painful. Like, that bit was kind of funny to me. But after that, like, it was just kind of hit or miss, even with him. And it's not, I mean, it, it was never it hit the actor's fault. I think Nanjiani was, like, funny mm-hmm. <laughs> relative to the lines themselves. But Okay, is it just me, or is Rebecca Ferguson kind of bad in this movie? I see to me she's bad in the way that everybody else is bad (laughs) there's like hey a lot of this feels like just script readings like kind of go you're you're kind of angry and it's like okay well you never blah 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 like you're you're feigning the emotion that you're gonna give when the cameras are rolling that's what it felt like with her and a lot of other people now that I think about it like you're doing the oh and whenever I read this I'll read it mad and I'll say it like this, but it's just kind of a fake version of that. Like you're not really there. That's what she felt like. Maybe it was just the wig. Like can whoever designed that wig be fired, please? <laughs> I, I kind of liked it. Oh, it's I so, kind of like so the bad. weirdness of it's it. It's so bad. Uh, yeah, like she she leaves no impression at all. Like, we'll give her a third arm. That's interesting. Like I will forever forgive her. Like anything she ever all, ever does, you know, for Mission Impossible and Doctor Sleep. But oh boy. This wasn't great. Yeah. Um, that is weird thinking about this horrific monster of a woman from Doctor Sleep, and then like this technically I'm here kind of performance. Yeah, and so I feel like what what else is there to say? Um, I, I guess the the climax they want you to have the moment. You, they want you to feel something. As H is go, as Agent H is telling High T or the monster version of High T, like I always thought of you as a father, and you, you, know, you said you always thought of me as a son, and we're supposed to have this tender moment, but they've never actually interacted in anything outside of a corporate setting before, and so I don't care. Exactly, we cut their one shared mission on screen together short, so I don't know what their dynamic is, and it's like. And like you said, we we don't see them outside of a of a corporate kind of setting, and even then, we barely see them. Like they're most of their screen time is separated, and we just have Liam Neeson being the one who's saying like, oh, "I I trust him," and and Ray's like, "Oh, you, you're always trying to protect him." Like we're hearing these things. We're like, I wouldn't have guessed that that was their their dynamic together because they don't talk to each other like this. We're just being told by Rafe Spall that, like, oh, you've always been looking out for him. Like, oh, okay, I'll take your word for it. Is there anything else you can think of to mention? Not a lot, because I, 
I feel like, and this is never a good thing, like halfway through, because I had to pause it, uh, and I was, you know, I had to drive and pick up my nephews and then continue whenever I got back. But while I was driving, I was, I was thinking about the movie, and I realized, like, I, what is this actually about right now? And I kind of had to remind myself of Vungus and this thing. I'm like, oh, that's... Oh, yeah, Vungus is there. They're trying... Okay, so they got this thing. It's like a sun, so I guess it's powerful. And there's a mole. And that... It's like, I, I guess that's where I'm at. I guess that's what's going on maybe that sounds about right <laughs> yeah like that, that, well that's what it felt like it was like there's there's motivation and things happening in the other movies and here i'm like i don't really know what to care about like i don't care about this mcguffin at all like the, th- the mcguffin's a cool idea and like the one moment is, like what they do in the desert i'm like okay that's kind of kind of cool visually i guess but outside of that, it just became the least interesting MacGuffin ever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. Also, okay, so <laughs> and I, I really don't have a whole lot of positive things to say, which stinks because I, I don't like being so negative. But I, there, there are a couple more things that I didn't like that I'll just go through real quick. So how did M learn as much as she did in that short a time? We don't know how long. We don't really know how long of a period of time it was, because they completely skip her entire training and initiation. Okay, because yeah, it just it felt like like they were she she clearly knew a like what a crazy conspiracy theorist would know. So like not out you know not not having the access to MIB intelligence, but you know like she's with her whole system and. Like, being able to extrapolate from what's going on, like, oh, here's an alien disguising itself as a meteor coming in, blah, blah, blah. But then, like, three scenes later, she, like, she knows more about all of these different, like, alien customs and stuff than H did. And that that dynamic also is just one that's grown old to me of, like, the the super smart newcomer who's just, like, completely gifted and then like they're really like oh i'm experienced and everybody loves me and and this is what the the goofballs online think that ray is from star wars yes this is that yeah ray earns all that stuff i could talk about star wars right now that'd be more interesting absolutely but yeah uh and then so the other thing that i didn't like was there's always been goofiness to the to the men in black like I, I, with whenever Will Smith touches the thing, like the little ball at first, and it just it's shooting around the office, and then you've got Rip Torn just kind of like moving his head sideways to dodge it, but continuing to like read his paperwork and stuff. Uh, you ha- like you had those moments of like silliness within the organization, but there was a semblance of competence to the organization and the trilogy. Like, there was a sense of, these guys kind of know what they're doing. They've, you know, I could buy somewhat that they are a competent organization that is able to handle all all of these alien affairs and stuff. But the entire organization just feels so inept here. Like, 
I don't know. It, it feels as if like the idea of of making this feel like an actual like an an imposing organization to alien like outside aliens that's just gone to me in this movie everybody just feels so goofy and silly and inept at everything they're doing i feel like we we spend so little time in the kind of the the day-to-day grind and process of being a man in black organization which was some of the funnest stuff you know watching Tommy Lee jones and will smith just doing like these random checkups like hey you know your visa doesn't allow this and kind of just going around (laughs) interacting with these people and you're trying to to just do uh bureaucratic grunt work um like that, that, that there's so little of that here yeah i get well, the so last thing uh and this, i'll end on a positive note i really like seeing the kind of scrawled out credits like that was nice oh, the there's something yeah and and then like the ending there's just something about the men in black kind of it feels like that early 2000s edginess that I really like for some reason. Oh yes, seeing that and hearing the theme it made me smile and then the movie happened. Yes. There there was absolutely nothing new to the theme, but just hearing the like that kind of progressive beat as scenes mm-hmm. kind of ramped up. I'm like, ah, I you know, Danny Elfman, I may hate you for Justice League, but there's <laughs> reason that I still like you. Uh, and then like at the end even though like the scene is supposed to be emotional like oh she has to leave him and go back to New York the only thing that made that like work in any way was Men in Black also has like that weirdly sweet music that they do like they pull back all of like the the brass and stuff and it's just like the kind of nice calming but sad uh, like string it's it's weird but it works within like the tone of these movies. And whenever they play that at the very end, I'm like, oh yeah, I liked it. Like it makes me think of like Tommy Lee Jones looking at the woman that he loves at the end of the first one, which mm-hmm. I like a lot better. But it's nice to hear that again and see see just seeing the credits and hearing the music. Like, if anything, I'm glad to just be back. But are you really? Well, Knowing what you know. Now that you see, that's the thing. Wiser. It's not you it's not like I, this isn't a movie that i i would be like oh neuralize me because i just i have no reaction <laughs> it, neural, it neuralizes you on its own you just <laughs> exactly i'm like wait did i watch this was it, yeah so it, it's not like oh they've damaged this this series they've turned it into a joke it's like I, they made another movie i guess and it's whatever it is and I so wish they could have done MIB 23 because like the structure of these films, it works that way. Like you have the, the guy, you know, the, the guy, new people coming in and learning about the organization and doing some kind of crazy adventure. Like it, it makes sense. Picturing Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum, like putting <laughs> the on the suits and going through the headquarters. Like I wanted this so bad. Like I wanted it as soon as I heard it was going to be called MIB twenty three because I immediately loved that. Yeah. But like those the the jump suit movies are so much fun and like Tatum and Hill honestly have one of my like favorite comedic duo vibes. Like I just watching them together is a freaking joy. And so if you had to like pass on the dynamic of Smith and Tommy Lee Jones to anybody else i'm like this would be a fun fresh and new like they would be they're obviously very very different so it's like i still get my fun dynamic but it's also new and fun and 
Oh man, I wish that could have happened. Yeah, although you got to wonder if the dynamic will work as well, you know, without uh, Lord and Miller writing and directing. That's true. You know, there'd be new writers, new director. I, I feel like it, ha- it would had to have worked better than what we got. All right, so let's move into our star rating and, and ranking. How do you rate? What do you give this film out of five stars? And how do you rank the series now so far? I, I mean, honestly, I feel like the only, the only thing that accurately shows my opinion is like two and a half. Like, cause that's that's how uh-huh. I feel. I, I don't feel overly negative or positive or anything. It's, I'm so middle of the road apathetic towards it that that that's that's where i'll i'll put my rating as for the ranking uh i think so one and three i've always gone back and forth on i think three has more heart but i think one is a good bit funnier and i really like i i like introduction movies does everybody else it's so popular to hate origin stories and all that i'm a sucker for them origin stories are the height of cinema what exactly. are you talking about i man there's nothing I like more than watching somebody learn something new, whether it's like the exposition of the Council of Elrond or every hero getting their powers or men in black. Like I'm there to watch other people learn things because it's fun to me. So I I go men in black one, then three, then two, then international. So I give it a two out of uh, five stars. Like, I, I could be I could do two and a half as well. I, I'm like you. I'm so middle of the road, just ambivalent. Like it's not it's not a hateful bad movie. There's there's little that's like actively bad about it. It's just there's also nothing good about it. So I so yeah. Um. So two out of five stars. And the ranking is MIB three at number one, Men in Black at number two, Men in Black International, and Men in Black two at number four. Like. Men in Black 2 is I think kind of an actively bad movie where this is just an actively completely average one. Um so going to the box office, this earned 80 million domestically and uh 173 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 253 million on its 110 million dollar budget. Uh which it was not a disaster. Like I I I I feel like the, the feeling in the air is that this movie just completely bombed. It it didn't. But it's it's also pretty disappointing. They probably didn't actually make any money off of it when you include marketing and theater cuts and all that back when theaters existed. Oh. So but but as as we said before, it was saved by, from being a financial disaster by, you know, having the lowest budget um in the series since the first film. Uh, it's also the lowest grossing film in the series by a long way. Um, as far as the critical reception, uh, it was critically panned as well. It has a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 38 on Metacritic. But like, it wasn't really hated. Um, like, like we said, the, the, the consensus seems to be that it was just excessively mediocre. And like most of the negative reviews are like, it's fine. It's like just meh seems to be the, ent- <laughs> the entire reception that it got. As to Legacy, would I be right in saying it doesn't have one? Like... I feel like it was forgotten before it even left theaters. Yeah. Usually, you know, you'll want to you want to take some time and give some room between its release before you try to think about what that looks like. But I when did this come out? Was this 2018? I think it was summer 2019. Wow. It's, it's so 2020 has just ruined my ability to like recall years. Uh yeah, it's a it's it's a year old, and it feels like it came out years ago to me. Like it feels like it's a it came out in my mind. I I place it among all of those other forgettable movies that came out in like 2016, 2017 to me. 
is what it <laughs> i don't know so I, I and i don't think anybody else is gonna remember it yeah and it's not it's not even a film that's bad enough to where it's remembered for its badness where you have all these you know video essays on youtube like what went wrong it's just like nobody cares enough to even you know criticize it and tear it apart not a good which is just not a good place to be which I feel like is a good place to end this episode. So that was our review of Men in Black International. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please head over to iTunes and take a moment to give us a rating and review and subscribe while you're at it. Uh, if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise League Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisePod. And you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseLeaguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Let's see if I can re- remember how to do this. Uh, you can follow me on letterboxd i am there as jl hamry it's jl h-a-m-r-i uh and you can also find the both of us over on the outer rim a star wars group which we are both admins of along with other friends who have been guests on here as well uh so man it's weird this episode just it's reminding me of like enjoying podcasting while also making me wish i was doing it over things that i liked more which are star wars uh, so if you too like Star Wars and you want to talk about it in a positive light, join us over there in that group. It's a great place. Um, so I am also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. You can find me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And I have a YouTube channel where I put out these uh, usually movie-based music videos and occasional trailer mashups called Greenery01. Um, so next week... We are far. <laughs> I feel like I, I'm tempting the fates to say next week because I've been saying that a lot <laughs> for about six months. Um, but next week, hopefully, we'll be finally be starting a, a new series. We haven't started a new like a new series since uh, May of last year when we started the MCU. Oh, it's been man. over a year since we started something new. Uh, yeah, and the series we're talking about will be the Bourne series, the Jason Bourne series. Um, uh, which is also weirdly another of another beloved trilogy. All I can't even say the Men in Black trilogy was beloved. <laughs> another beloved series that had a very disappointing attempt at a reboot with a new cast, uh, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love the original trilogy, and I I even kind of appreciate Legacy on certain levels. So <laughs> this is gonna be fun. And then one of those very one of those series that's just very important in film history as well. Yeah, yeah I'm looking forward to it because I. I watched the first one years ago, but I don't even. I we also started at like two a.m. Oh wait, you haven't seen them? No. Oh my god, how, how did? That's why I was looking forward to this. Oh my gosh! Gotta get wow. international out of the way. Okay, this is, this is gonna be even more fun than I thought. Oh no, and I've seen Legacy. <laughs> okay. Well then, in that case. So until next time, we will see you in the new series. Too late. I already pledged the loyalty. I wish you said no, no, no before.